listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Brenda Miller to talk about her new book, Abraded Hearts, Essays on Writing and Form, and Suzanne Paolo Antonetta for, their, for her new book, The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here. Before I introduce them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now fully open and uh, we are following the CDC mandates, so if you're unvaccinated, we ask that you bring your mask still. To but if you're that fully vaccinated, come on by. Um, please, we're still uh, be respectful to the customers and the employees there. But welcome back. We're so excited to see you. We're still open for. Um, we still have our uh, website www.skylightbooks.com open. And for online ordering, so check that out as well. Brenda Miller is the author of five essay collections, including An Earlier Life, which received the Washington State Book Award for Memoir. Her latest book, A Braided Heart, Essays on Writing and Form, is available from the from University of Michigan Press. She also co-authored Tell It Slant, Creative Refining and Publishing Creative Nonfiction, and The Pen and the Bell, Mindful Writing in a Busy World. Brenda's work has received six Pushcart Prizes. She's a professor of English at Western Washington University and associate faculty with the Rayner Writing Workshop. Her website is www.brendamillerwriter.com. Suzanne Paola Antonetta is the author of Make Me a Mother, Curious Adams, A History of Physics, Body Toxic, An Environmental Memoir, A Mindful Apart, Travels in a Neurodiverse World, a novella, and four books of poetry. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Orion, the New Republic, and elsewhere. She lives in Bellingham, Washington. Suzanne and Brenda, so great to have you on. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, it's great to be here. No, it's great to have you both. You both have, you have wonderful works you're ready to share. I'm so excited to hear it. Yes, thank you. All right. take it away. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to start the reading. I'm going to read um, a complete piece from um, the new book, A Braided Heart. Uh, these essays are about my own writing life, but also about craft and um, how to keep a writing life going. And I'd like to read the last essay in the book. It's a short piece that kind of brings it all together. It's called The Shape of Emptiness. His mother dies three weeks before the end of the quarter. A boy, a good student, he emails me to tell me the news, asks permission to be absent. Of course, I say, take as much time as you need. 
I tell him he can withdraw, take an incomplete, but he promises to be back in class next week, and he is. I see him settled into his accustomed seat, his wire-rimmed glasses nestled securely on his nose, his khaki shirt buttoned, his feet encased in battered running shoes. I catch his eye and we nod to one another, understanding. He needs to be here. The students flanking him know he needs to be here. A bright thread of tenderness coils around us. We've been talking about white space, about the necessity of pause, of absence, the power of the gap, of what is unsaid and unspeakable. I have nothing much more to tell them, these students who are winding their way toward their final projects. So I allow them to work with each other, to mull and brainstorm while I walk among them. The boy sits attentively in his circle, making astute comments to the others. He leans forward on the small desk, crosses his forearms, tilts his head. I've told the students to be playful in this project, to use other media, to see it as a performance of all we've been learning about lyric forms. As a professor, I rarely feel in control, always feel like an imposter, that there's been a mistake. But with this particular class, there's a give and take in our discussions, an ease to our camaraderie. We've somehow become teachers to one another. When the time comes for the presentations, the students rise to the task. One girl unfurls a quilt with sections of her essay printed on each square. She tells us she and her mom and her sisters stitched together this story of family over Thanksgiving. One girl has made her own soap and buried scraps of her essay inside the rough hewn cakes. She brings in bowls of water and towels, asks us to wash our hands with her essay while she reads about shame, about wanting to be cleansed. She begins to cry and I finish the recital for her. The boy has brought in Play-Doh, small cans of it that he drops on each desk. He asks us to take the lump and squeeze it in our fists. That's all, just squeeze. Then he gathers them up and puts these little sculptures on display at the front table. Each lump looks different, unique, modeling the individual shapes of our palms, the ridges from our inner knuckles. The boy stands aside and begins to read, his voice soft at first, then growing more forceful. He asks us, what is the shape of emptiness? Then he pauses, allows the question to remain unanswered. We gaze at our Play-Doh impressions, see how we all have different ways to hang on. He made visible the air we never see, the shape of our holding, our hollow spaces pressed into clay, the form of the word please. Years from now, this boy will become a man. He'll marry and have two children, and I'll see the pictures on Facebook. He'll be my friend in the way many of us are friends these days, through screens and updates and thumbs up. On the anniversary of his mother's death, he posts pictures, her face so like his own. I wonder if he remembers our classroom, 
the large windows that looked out toward the bay, the way light filtered in and made us all pause. I'll watch his hands as he carries one baby, then another, and see how full they have become. But for now, when he finishes reading, he gathers our hands and gives them back to us one by one. We take them from him carefully so we can carry our emptiness into the day. We compare them, showing off the shapes of our grasping, curled like prayers, like anger, like love. Thank you, Brenda. I don't think I'm supposed to clap, but I'm having Yay. a hard time stopping myself there. I'm doing like a light clap all out there. Thank you. Well, Brenda, as you know, we wrote Tell It Slant together. And yes. It's been a while. And so the first piece in this book I ever read was Braided Heart. And mm -hmm. that piece just blew me away. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who worked with you on a craft book, I have just always been so impressed by your ability to write the kind of perfect memoiristic lyric essay while having this ability also to demonstrate what you know as a writer you you just i think of it as generosity mm. and also being just very holistic in the way you approach writing so we see you as a teacher we learn but we also get these just gorgeous words so maybe this is a hard question or maybe not but how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> how do I do that? Um, well, a lot of the pieces in this book were written during writing retreats. And so there are times when uh, you have the time, but also the space in your head to really be filtering through memories and experiences and ideas and bringing them together in a way that makes a new kind of sense. And especially on a writing retreat, you're very aware of yourself as a writer, right? And so um, so I would write these pieces, and but then they never quite fit into any of my other books because I kind of feel like when you mention yourself as a writer or a teacher, that kind of takes the reader out of the experience that you're describing. And so it's a little kind of, tick of mine when I read that in other people's work. I'm like, oh, well, I wish I could just stay in the uh, the world they're creating, right? So um, when I had, the, when I was kind of between projects, and so I brought these pieces together, these kind of orphan pieces that had been floating around and um, saw that they made a book. And uh, it was gratifying to see that I still did have myself in it that um, even though many of them are about other writers or about craft, I can't help but bring the eye into it and have that perspective on it. So I think it's just maybe a natural way that that I approach any kind of writing. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's what I mean by holistic. We see mm -hmm. the Brenda that teaches but not in a way that feels didactic or mm -hmm. like I'm here to teach you what to do. And I think that's just such a wonderful aspect of this book. Mm -hmm. um, I think another question I had is that the Braided Heart is the first piece you wrote in here, is it not? Oh it boy, not? it's hard to say uh, because these pieces were written over at least 20 years. And um, so I'm not sure if A Braided Heart really is the first one. I think um, 
one of the more personal pieces might be one of the first ones. Okay. Yeah. Well, certainly it's an early one and I'm yeah. not sure which the other one is, but this is, it's just a, it's a long span of time for a book. And the mm -hmm. last piece in it is written during COVID. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a remarkable movement. And I'm wondering how you feel things sort of evolved during that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I wrote a braided heart, it was um, an article that I was asked to write for a publication. And at that point, and that was a long time ago, the lyric essay and braided essays and collage and those kinds of forms, although they'd been around for a while, were just now or just then getting more attention and both in publishing these kinds of pieces, but also thinking about them. So um, so I'd say that I, I wrote that one at a time when there was kind of a void, if I want to put it that way, of, of pieces that are thinking more critically about form and, and what we're doing with those forms. And I wrote that one on a writing retreat in Wyoming, and I actually drove to Wyoming uh, to write it. And um, I was writing in my head the whole time. Like, I was like, how am I going to you know, bring this together? And me being me, I had to find metaphors and images, right? So I, I bring in the challah, which is the braided egg bread, right? So by the time I got to the retreat, it just kind of fell onto the page, almost fully formed. Um, so that was great. And it has become one of the most requested articles that I've written. So I was very happy to get it in book form where it's more available. And uh, then working up to the present day, um, the epilogue of the book is a collaboration I've been doing with um, Julie Marie Wade, one of our former students. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as writers who are so attuned to the world, we kind of necessarily have to write about what's happening right in front of us. Although sometimes it takes a while to filter it. But in this case, uh, it was just so urgent to get out how we were feeling about um, being writers um, in the time of COVID-19. Um, so those, the kind of collaborations I've been doing is something that's you know relatively new to the other essays in this book. I think that leads to another question that to me speaks to just the big amount writers can take away from this book as writers as well as as readers of lyric essay and memoir which is that one of the essays in here starts with you having a cold oh and then there are the others where you're actually grappling with metaphor and what metaphor does and you know again to go back to that last one the epilogue the pandemic and I think one of the things we all want to learn is how to make everything count mm. even mm -hmm. our head colds yes <laughs> and i think that's a great thing this book is demonstrating and i wondered if you could speak to that yeah i've um become very adept at just sitting down and writing what's right in front of me because i rarely actually have an idea uh, in my head <laughs> until I start writing. And uh, that's why it's very hard to do like grant proposals and things like that, because I actually don't think things out too much ahead of time. And again, that one was written on a writing retreat. I had a very bad cold. Um, and again, I think I had been asked to write a piece about the lyric essay. And I was like, oh, I don't know where to begin. And so I just began with what was right in front of me. And, um, and then I, I'm 
because I've done that so much, my mind is trained to automatically start creating metaphor, looking for associations. Um, so I'd say that's a great practice to do almost every day if you want to, is just sit down for five minutes and write what's right in front of you. Even if you're in the exact same spot at that time, it's always going to be different. There's always going to be something different out the window. There's always going to be different things on your desk. So I often start my classes that way as our warm up, what's right in front of you. And sometimes um, write it as a letter to a friend, to a family member, to your dog, um, and having that sense of some Someone who's listening can also focus your attention right away. That's wonderful advice. Mm. I guess to take a, back, a step back for a second, it is a really interesting book. It's such a hybrid book. I know books that tell you how to write and I know books not tell you how to write, but you know what I mean, give you ideas, give you craft thoughts and so on. And I know books of memoir, but this book really is a, a great hybrid of the two. And I think it'd be interesting to hear from you what you want readers mm. to take away from this book. Mm. I'd like readers to uh, take away some insights about craft for sure, especially the middle section of this in three sections and an epilogue. And the middle section is where I put most of the crafty type articles that I think could be really helpful in both teaching and in your, your own writing and thinking especially about form and how we, we um, can approach form and use form in different ways. And then the first part of the book is more autobiography of my own evolution as a writer, starting from my very first memories of writing. And so that might be something for people to take away too, is to consider their own um, history as a writer, like, and think about your earliest memories of writing. And, and that piece um, actually started as part of our textbook, Suzanne, you might've recognized it, right? I did. I did, and yeah, yeah so, um, so thinking about you know those early memories and how they often establish certain themes in our life and certain metaphors that seem to carry through our lives so um so that might be something to take away and then the third section is more about my writing life now and the different tricks i play on myself to try to keep myself writing which includes having contracts with other fellow writers or actually writing with people in the same room. Um, so that's another thing I hope readers can take away are some ideas about how to keep motivated in your writing life. Yeah, I wonder if that offers some hints of how you managed to do such a good job of writing about things like metaphor without it being self-conscious. Mm. Mm. Thank you. You're, yeah, you're kind of going with what you encounter. I love that. Yeah, that idea. And that is a sustainable practice. Which... Yes, and it is a practice, you know, like with anything you practice, you're going to get better at it, or you're going to be able to do it more quickly. Right. So just thinking of it that way that, you know, our writing is always a practice. And just like in a sport or a musical instrument, the more you practice your chops, the more fluent you're going to become in them. Great. Yeah. As you said, when the, when you started this book, it actually was a time when people were saying, well, what is a braided essay? What is, obviously people are still sometimes asking that question, but there's a lot more out there about forms like that. And that one's certainly been one we've been considering for a while. Um, what keeps them fresh? Um, I think people just keep um, pushing the boundaries of those forms and creating more hybrid work. And in fact, I just wrote a very short piece for 
the journal Creative Nonfiction, and they're having a special issue on the evolution of, of the genre coming out this fall. And I ended up writing about how when I first started writing and teaching the lyric essay, it seemed we would call it almost experimental or we'd call it you know, innovative forms and that we're doing something kind of crazy, you know. And the last time I taught the lyric essay, my students were saying, so why is this so special? Why, you know, <laughs> isn't all, aren't all essays like doing this? And so it actually has become more mainstream, right? It's no longer really seen as experimental. And so I think um, in order for works to be fresh, I mean, I think using the forms and in their traditional ways, um, but uh, really um, bringing new content to it, um, bringing the world into it the way I've been doing in the collaborations with Julie Wade, right? So um, just figuring out different ways to keep it fresh for yourself. Great, that's a great yeah. answer. Oh, so thank you, Suzanne. Shall we switch hats now and have you sure. read a bit from your wonderful new book? Yeah, um, that would be wonderful. Let me see. I'm going to read, I think, about three pages, which hopefully should, should be right around five minutes. So this is a book in which I am sort of taking, it, it focuses on my grandmother, but a lot of what I'm doing in this book is thinking about the questions that her beliefs raised. Um, uh, she was a Christian scientist, she was a spiritualist. And so obviously that raises a lot of questions about interesting things like reality, like consciousness. And I visited psychics and I talked to scientists, which was a, a fun thing to do. Um, but I'm gonna start kind of at the beginning with a little bit about her. My grandmother believed she had no physical body. She had given birth to my mother who had given birth to me. So there were a lot of bodies in the story, a lot of flesh swell to be so non-existent. And that it, they had nested in each other like matryoshka dolls. If you can imagine the smallest matryoshka doll, not simply nesting, but struggling to claim the same body as the larger, dividing and dividing just to achieve eye and limb and breath. And each body had to be unstuck from the one before on a tide of blood and fluid. The strenuousness of the body's efforts, what you could call the absurdity of the strenuousness only made my grandmother May more convinced. Do you believe in a God who would cause suffering and death? She would ask me, answering herself before I got a chance to. I don't believe in a God who would cause suffering and death. May gave birth four times. When my grandmother was young, she skinny dipped every summer morning in Barnegat Bay and Estuary, so a place where fresh and salt water meet. A bay coming off the Atlantic Ocean and flowing 42 miles down the New Jersey coast. My grandmother did not swim naked in my lifetime that I know of. I was her first female grandchild, born to the eldest daughter who had finally at age 33 gotten herself married. I want to pretend I remember her nude swimming as it captures something. Her denial of the body, her worship of the body seems struck from the same bell. May is still a young woman in this time I'm thinking of, perhaps with an embryo inside her. She may not know it yet, that mad cell splitting, the rush of this new being to catch up to the body my grandmother could so relish and dismiss. 
May wakes up in the morning at the shore and drinks her Lipton's, teabag in, no sugar. The kitchen is a galley that could hold maybe two of her, slender as she is. Buckling linoleum meets the arches of her feet. She goes into the even tinier bathroom that holds a toilet and a sink, cold water. Pees luxuriously, holding it in while drinking her tea, one of those small ritual denials we all practice. Sluices her face. She hangs her floral nightgown on the towel rack and knots a pink chenille bathrobe around her, then crosses the dirt road. Sun inches up, a thin moon fades. Next to the bungalows, a field of cattails grows to her height. And on a few, red-winged blackbirds sway. Their call holds a strange high pitch and then a click like the tisk of a tongue. May stands ankle deep in the bay that laps up to a half circle of land, a round inlet roughly the size of a high school gym. The waters brackish and laps at more cattails. No other homes nearby yet, just the two men who live in a shack at the strip of land on the other side of the water. Strange men no one would listen to. So my grandmother May has only herself to make a history here. And this is so familiar she doesn't think, just unknots the robe, drops it over the small wooden dock that holds her rowboat and puts her body that is not a body into the water. I should say this is written in very short chapters. These are each a chapter. Immortal truth. My grandmother spoke to spirits. Given her beliefs, she spoke to them as one spirit to another. A message passing between two like beings in different planes of existence, coded and implicative, like a lover's text. And it's true, she was chummy almost in her table wrapping sessions with Simon the spirit she contacted in her Ouijaing. She read tea leaves, which I don't believe she was terribly serious about and held seances, which she was. She performed seances at home in Westfield in Northern New Jersey, but she most loved to do them at the shore during her and her children's summers there. May believed she could control and change the world with her mind. This was in its way a practical belief, meaning it had no base in psychology. No sense that the world is what you make it or it's up to you to decide how you feel about things. These truths my grandmother might have acknowledged but they skirted the central one. If the matter of the world had only spiritual reality and poured forth from your mind, you could make it do anything you wanted. Spirit is immortal truth, matter is mortal error. So says the Christian science creed. And death only moves you from one spiritual existence to another. From the summer land you built beside an estuary off the coast of New Jersey, heavily polluted, but still a potent symbol. To a place called by America's first prophet and clairvoyant, Andrew Jackson Davis, the summer land. So I kind of still put in some material in here about myself and this is one of them and hopefully it's all connecting I'm making all these connections between reality unreality spirit and body and that's kind of what I'm trying to do here in the summer land often my teenaged body and I moved through the world as I imagined my grandmother's body did in view of her beliefs 
That is, me and my matter found a physical equilibrium in which the body loses existence and becomes theoretical. Once at a concert in Asbury Park, I was full of quaaludes and heroin, and I stumbled outside alone halfway through. I don't remember leaving or know why I did. Outside, I collapsed on the pavement. It's hard to explain that state of not being conscious or unconscious either. When I came to myself, the concert had ended, the world was dark, and several cops were yanking on my arms. Nope, my ride had left. Somehow the cops decided to leave me alone and somehow I found another ride. What matters here is the sensation and the sequence. I left the theater without knowledge of my body, which meant it crashed around doing its own unpredictable thing. As my eyes opened and the yanking began, it returned, a weight that reinstated itself around the nerve endings, finding themselves scraped by sidewalk. It had been gone and it had come back in the manner of physicist John Wheeler's comment that the only phenomena that can be said to exist in the universe are observed phenomena. And that's that. Yay, thank you. Thank you. Oh, Suzanne, I love this book so much. And um, when you mentioned, you know, doing new things with form and what people are doing these days, I think you are a stellar example of how you're pushing the segmented collage form into new territory. And when I read this book, I was trying to think of a metaphor again for it, because we've used the braid, we've used collage, we use mosaic so much. But as you were reading, I started envisioning a spider web. So there's like a glistening spider web and each little strand is connected to the others in very intricate ways. So I think it's a real masterpiece. And uh, you mentioned that it's composed of many small chapters and I counted them and I came up with 151. Is that correct? Do you know? It is correct, but I should say, um, for anybody out there interested in reading it, it's not a long book at all. No, they're very chapters that are tiny, tiny, tiny. Tiny, tiny. Yeah, it's a normal size book, but 151, which surprised me a bit because I thought for sure it would be a multiple of five, because you mention in your book being kind of obsessed with that <laughs> that number. I think the editors did that to me. I think they took uh, out my lucky number. Uh, oh, editors. Darn it. I'm joking, uh, I love my editors. Yes, and uh, it's further divided into five parts. So there's a lot of small segments that are then um, put together in a section, and then the sections themselves build into the book. So my question is, how did you manage to corral all those pieces? Um, and did you have to do a lot of reordering? Was that a fun process? Was it difficult? How did it come to be in the shape that it is now? Yeah, it is. It, well, first of all, I should say that the properties where this is set, and my grandfather built them himself, and I don't think he paid for the land they were on. It's not really worth anything anyway. Um, were destroyed by Sandy. So that, you know, actually the idea for this, my sort of percolating started in 2012. And I have to say, since he may not listen to this, I hope, um, that I thought I had it done when I showed it to my spouse, who's my reader, and he gave it back and said no. And so the psychic and scientist part where I actually did the interviews and I went to these psychics and one was just so startlingly accurate. 
that was all really late. And I think that the chapters got shorter and shorter as I went. And I ended up really liking that structure because, you know, I really do so many different things. And um, in addition to, you know, this kind of researchy stuff and the memoir that you heard, and it deals with, you know, not just me and my grandmother, but my mother is, is a big figure in here. And I also do that sort of creating um, a, a narrative, a speculative narrative for the life of my grandmother before I knew her. She was a nurse in the First World War. So I think the short chapters really enabled me to do that. And I also think it's just a book that, you know, some people have trouble putting, seeing that much in one place, but I think reception of it has been really good. Mm -hmm. I feel like people have been appreciating that it does do so many things, which mm -hmm. um, was something I wondered about, you know, as mm -hmm. I finished it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned research and um, most of your books, if not all, do um, have a really strong research component. And that's something I've always admired and tried to learn from you. Um, so how do you manage to, again, organize that research and incorporated in your work without it feeling like a big information dump. Um, and, and, and I think it works so well because it's not, and it's always in your voice. And so what, do you have any tips or tricks for those of us who aren't so, um, so capable of doing that? I do. And actually it's something I love to talk about and I should throw out here. My email address is suzantonetta at gmail.com. I love talking about this kind of thing. Um, I really focused in, in this book on the questions and I did start out with my grandmother's questions. I mean, she really literally believed the body didn't exist and that your mind is all that exists. And so I was reading around in consciousness studies and, and, and seeing that there are people who don't exactly believe that they don't think the body doesn't exist, but they do think consciousness is a big thing that it exists outside of the brain within the universe, that it is kind of a web. Mm -hmm. um, that connects us. And these are very serious scientists from, you know, places like, you know, top tier research universities. So I took my grandmother's questions as a spiritualist, as a Christian scientist and said, well, what if I ask people who aren't in that world, but who are in the kind of the world of science or the world of, you know, um, psychics are in her world in a way, but I was thinking to myself, well, what if I can actually go out, ask them questions and see what happens? And the result was really interesting to me. And I think having it in those digestible bits keeps it from being a dump, I hope. I mean, most of the, even the science chapters are a page. So mm -hmm. a couple paragraphs, the longest are two or three pages. Mm -hmm. I think that yeah. helps too. Um, and in many of them, you allow the reader to go along with you on the research. Like we're finding it out as you're finding it out too. And yeah. Right. And I think I tried really hard not to come down really strongly on sides. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't know. We don't know a lot of things. We don't know if our universe is actually real in the way I think we think it is. So I really wanted, I say this at the beginning of the book, that it was a late edition, that I really wanted to ask questions and mm. I didn't want to give definitive answers. And I think that also works against that feeling of information dumping. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, you're also a poet and a fiction writer, and I think even what, screenplays now too? Or... 
No, I did one yeah. screenplay and it never sold. And yeah. It didn't sell. It was interesting. Nobody said it was bad. I mean, it got praise, but everybody said the characters were over 40. Oh, dear. <laughs> it was depressing. Oh, you got to get Reese Witherspoon on that one. Um, yeah. So, but my question is, so um, is there something that spurs you to write in one genre or another, or does it just kind of naturally come to you that this is going to be a book of nonfiction, this is going to be fiction? How does that work for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mostly do nonfiction these days. Um, my novel contained a lot of personal material, but I felt like some of it was almost like handling asbestos. Mm -hmm. particularly the death of my mother. Mm -hmm. So in that book, Entangled Objects, I, I think fiction allowed me to change the story in ways that were helpful to create characters that weren't me. And, um, but it did contain some personal material. I think that when I started writing nonfiction after writing a lot of poetry, I just wanted something that felt expansive. Like I could just fit stuff into it that wasn't fitting. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the book's title is The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here. Um, can you talk about that title and how does it uh, forecast the, the themes that you see running through the book? Sure. Well, I mean, there's so many terrible unlikelihoods in there. Um, me being having survived, I think, is a terrible unlikelihood in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, the way my family lived, but most directly it comes from science. And that is um, the fact that the universe is so fine-tuned for life that it's actually a huge problem. And everybody knows the multiverse theory, I think, by now. It's been popularized. But the reason that exists is because it's so utterly improbable. I mean, I think if you tried to make it a number, it would have so many zeros, your head would spin, that we exist here. And so the idea that there are infinite universes and one had to work out is actually more palatable to a lot of people than that this universe is just so fine-tuned for mm. life. And the terrible unlikelihood of our being here is a reference to that. Mm. And of course, that's like a terribly meaningful fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I know earlier drafts were called uh, Summerland yeah, or The yeah. Summerland. Um, and yeah, this one, uh, this title is much broader in a way, right? It allows uh, for more interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you, Suzanne. Yeah. Um, so I think we're just about at our time, but I'll ask Lance if he'd like us to keep going or are we about at our time, Lance? can't hear you. <laughs> Keep going. We, I'm not okay. Sorry. If you guys are up to it. Sure. How sure. about we each ask each other one last question? Okay. That would Sounds be fun. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so in the book, as in parts of what you read to us, you know, there's some very personal material, some maybe emotionally challenging material. Uh, but I guess my question is, is it a mystery? Um, I think that it is when I start, but I think what's wonderful is the way that writing creates communities, um, you hear from people who needed to read that, and just when you get into the craft of it, you really have to start taking a big step back, mm -hmm. and then I think that material becomes a bit less so, 
Mm -hmm. Obviously, some things always hurt. Mm -hmm. um, but I have never found writing therapeutic in the way people often say it is. But I, I do find it, the processing is incredibly important to me just as a human being. Right, right. And it is important um, to kind of destigmatize too, you know, for your readers, you know, to not feel alone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a final question for Brenda. Gosh, so many questions I'd like to ask you. But let me ask you a similar question. I mean, you do go into very personal material as well. And yet you do it in this amazing way in this book where it's also kind of inviting people in to participate in that conversation, mm -hmm. which I think is a real gift mm. um, that you give as a writer, which again, to me, is just that incredible generosity. Uh, so maybe you could talk about that a little bit, too. Yeah, thank you. Um, one of the pieces in the book is called A Case Against Courage in Creative Nonfiction. And in that piece, I talk about it because I was thinking about it and when I would give readings of pieces that involve um, very personal <laughs> revelations. And I was, when I'm reading it, I'm just enjoying the words and the sentences and the form. And then afterwards, people would say I was very brave for reading that piece or even writing the piece. And it made me feel kind of bad. <laughs> I like to say that I was being brave meant I did something wrong or that one shouldn't uh, do this kind of thing. Um, so I just started mulling over that word brave and courage and, and what it meant. And I, I realized that I don't feel like I need to be brave or courageous to deal with this material because of form. Because one, like you say, I'm taking a step back and there has to be the right time and place to do this. It might not be at the time these events happened. It might be 20 years later or it might be the next day. You know, you just mm -hmm. never know until you start writing it. Um, but once you find the right voice and the right form to contain these memories or this material, then it becomes material and it becomes something that you're shaping apart from yourself. And it's not necessarily anymore the truth of your existence, it's the truth of what is on the page as a literary artifact, as a piece of art. And so for me, I often startled myself when I look back at some of the things I've written, I went, oh my gosh, I didn't know I wrote that, right? Or someone will point it out to me. <laughs> and uh, like my mother <laughs> might point out something to me. It's like, I didn't know you were feeling that way. And it's like, it's okay, mom, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a kind of a crucial move that happens in creative nonfiction, especially I think when you really start seeing this material as material and not your stuff that you're processing. And I think that's a really important move to make. And it's not one you'll necessarily make right away. Like we were talking about practice. It takes a lot of practice to, to make that um, perspective shift. Right. That's a wonderful answer. And I think as a comment, that to me is such a great permission for those people who are thinking, I can't start writing this because I, I really wouldn't want anybody else to know. Right. That's not yeah. the place where you stop. Right, exactly. And you do, I, I have to banish all eyes and ears from my writing room when I'm writing and just pretend no one's ever going to read it. And it's harder to do that now. I kind of long for those days when no one was going to read it. And 
sure. Yeah, but you really have to do that. And you won't know until you start writing how it's going to shape up. And um, if you stop yourself too soon, then your story is just going to be stifled. Yeah. Right. And for anyone out there thinking that, what I always say to the people I work with is that's not a drafting question. That's a publishing question. Yes. Two very different things. Mm-hmm. No one's going to steal your laptop and put it on the web. So right. Try it. Be fearless. Like Be Brenda. fearless. Be fearless. Yes, exactly. I'm like, wow, what a great, I think that's a great ending point. Be fearless, right? fearless be fearless that's honestly i feel like that should be the thesis of this entire conversation right yes thank Thank you you. um thank you so much brandon suzanne you guys have just what a great uh conversation to like be a part just to listen to i mean you guys i could sense like your friendship and just like the respect and love you both have for each other just really came across in this uh what what a treat. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any last words you would like to say to the, you know, community, the independent bookstore community and the Skylight community? Thank you for being there, you know, and hanging in. Um, we need to support our local booksellers and uh, you do so much for the communities that you're in. Thank you. Yeah, I just can only echo that. Um, independent bookstores are terribly important. If you're out there, you should support them. If they have online sales, do that. Um, because, you know, talking about communication and community, that's where it happens for so many writers and readers is those wonderful independent bookstores that have workshops and readings and things like this and are really enriching the community, not just taking your credit card. Mm-hmm. It's true. That is true. No, that's Thank you both for that. That um, thank you, <laughs> thank you for being a part of the supporting the independent bookstore community too, and thank you to all the listeners for coming back again. Um, this is today we had Brenda Miller and Suzanne Paula Antonetta um, again for their books *A Braided Heart* and *The Terrible Unlike- Unlikelihood of Our Being Here*. Both books, which are currently, as you're listening to this episode on display, uh, on our podcast display in the front of the Skylight Bookstore right now. So go check it out. Go read these two wonderful works and check out their other work too. They have so many great books to go, so many great books out there. And yeah, it's just go, go check them out. (laughs) And thank you to all the listeners again for returning. Thank you to my two guests today for being wonderful. And to everyone, have a great wonderful and beautiful rest of your day today have a good thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram also don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations you can find us on podbean itunes and spotify stay safe and healthy and we hope to see you back in our store soon